Well, let's be seated. Let's take up our Bibles. Let's turn to James chapter 5. And as we find that, do you remember what Ben said last week? He said, we are not in control. Not, he said, that we need a reminder of that point right now. Thing is, often, the more out of control we feel, the more we try to regain it. And that is when things go wrong. When we try to gain control, that's when we sin. And last week's passage was addressed to a people of power. And if you are a person of power, we saw that one of the ways in which you might seek to gain control is by manipulating and even abusing the people beneath you. When I was a student, I took a job at a farm. Mum and Dad watching online will remember this. And uh, because it was such hard work and such low pay, they found it very difficult to keep people on. So they said to us, if you work for the whole 12 weeks of the summer, at the end of 12 weeks, you'll get a bonus at the end. And every single day to stop us from quitting, they said, don't forget the bonus. Work the 12 weeks and you get the bonus at the end. Wednesday, week 11, when we were all called into the owner's office. And he said to us, thank you for all of your hard work. It's all done so you can leave early today. And someone naive said, so do we get the bonus now? No, he said, you did not work the full 12 weeks. Now, I am afraid to say that in the heat of the moment, I used some strong, indeed French terminology to question the legitimacy of the gentleman's lineage. And I know what you're thinking, Alex, you're supposed to be a Christian. You should never use French words. But, you know, this is before I came to faith, okay? That's my excuse. Even though I was not a believer, even though I was angry, I actually stumbled upon a theological truth by mistake. My parting shot to him was, you will be judged for this. I did not know if it was true. I just wanted it to be true. I was weak. I was annoyed. I wanted someone to step in and do something for me. And James chapter 5, last week's passage, verses 1 to 6, they're written to a people of power like that guy with this very same warning. Do not seek so much control of the world around you that you abuse the people underneath you and thus bring yourself under judgment. And now verses 7 to 12, the passage today, James switches from the people of power to the people of weakness. He switches to the suffering and to the oppressed and to the vulnerable, to the weak. And what's fascinating for us is that instead of just simply taking their side and, and penning for us a sort of Marxist rant for the good of the proletariat, he gives them a warning as well. Just you remember, you are not the judge. Chapter 5, verse 7 the first of three ways in which the suffering, the vulnerable, or the weak seek to control the world around them as well. And in doing so, how they undermine their faith. So number one way that people who are vulnerable or abused or suffering seek to control the world around them, judging. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Again, you see in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In Scripture, the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord, judgment day, is simply the day when 
Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. It is judgment day that is in view here. You are not the judge. The judge is the judge. Guess what the judge will do when he comes to judge? Judge. So stop judging, says James. Now, why do we do it? Why do we judge? Why do we love to judge other people, especially those who have upset us? Well, it feels good, right? Let's be honest. It feels really good to judge people. So you've done this thing to me, but now I have this power over you because I can judge you. I can look down on you, in fact, even though you've abused me. Now I have a power because I'm a victim and I can be self-righteous. Being judgy when you're hurt gives you a sense of power, a sense of superiority, even a sense of control. See, I might get the upper hand now because I can get revenge and it's legitimate revenge. And it's tempting when we've been sinned against to do this. When someone has sinned against you, it is tempting to become their judge. What will it do to your faith if you become the judge? Well, instead of this, James says, verse 7, be patient. Then he says, like a farmer, being patient. Verse 8, so you also be patient. And what this means is that James wants us to be patient. And as an illustration of this, James uses a farming metaphor. would have been absolutely brilliant to use this with my boss if I'd been a Christian. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. Well, just as the, the seasons are completely outside of your control, and just as the rain is outside of your control, you can't make it rain, you can't make it be spring or fall, it's a lot easier to rest in the sovereignty of God when you know these things are guaranteed to happen. It will rain eventually. In Pennsylvania, it will rain very soon. This is good news. Not only is he coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, but it will be soon, and it will be the perfect timing, and you can't influence that timing, so relax, says James. Trust the judge. Trust the judgment of the judge. Trust the timing of the judge, and be patient. Now, you might just say to me, well, this is lame, right? This is just rubbish. What kind of a point is this? Just living with oppression and, and not changing the world around you, just sitting around and just taking a beating. What, what kind of a system is that? I think I might become a Muslim. At least they get knives. Well, patience is not passive. Patience is not sitting around, not at all. Patience is not a call to do nothing. Look at verse 8. It says, while you wait for the judge, establish your hearts. It's a very active image. Letting go of control and trusting in God is not passive. It's active. It does something. It does something to your heart, actually. It does something to your faith. It establishes it. To establish means to strengthen. It literally means to make stable or firm. It's an architectural or an engineering image like a column or a pillar, is strong. It means to set fast or to fix into place. It's a structural image of strength to establish. And what he's doing is he's saying to the weak, to those who are suffering or vulnerable or abused, trusting in the judge does something to your faith. It makes it stronger. Patience gives your faith 
a workout. Now, you only have to look back a few verses to find an alternative. Just glance back to last week's passage, because there's something else you could do to your heart instead. Chapter 5, verse 5. To those who have sought control and taken matters into their own hands, James says, not you've established, but you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Like, instead of going for a long run and lifting some weights, you've just sat around and eaten cheese. It's a sort of fatted heart. I have a fatted heart. It's a cholesterol sort of image for you, isn't it? Uh, You've not established your heart. You've fattened it. It's a preparation of your heart of a very different kind. Drawing, I think, images here of, of a sacrificial animal, like a calf that's been prepared for weeks on end for a day of slaughter. Every single time you try to take control and you become the judge or you become the boss of other people and you put people down, the weaker your faith becomes. Every single time you react with this, I'm going to get you attitude, the weaker your faith becomes. The less you rely on God, the more you rely on yourself, the fatter your heart gets until, like a fatted calf, it is slaughtered. It is an image of death. If you seek to control the world around you, you are playing God. And that means sacrificing yourself. Christ died on the cross for you. Christ was prepared for sacrifice for you. The whole point of the cross was that you would not have to face judgment and death that it deserves. He was judged for you so that you don't have to be. Stop judging people. Christ was judged. He is the judge and he was judged and he was vindicated as well. So if you trust in him you will be vindicated too. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, to judge or to vindicate, depending on the condition of your heart. Is it established or is it fattened? It's one or the other. What are you doing judging? Do you want to be Jesus? That's insane. No one in their right mind would want to be Jesus. Do you want to die for the sins of the whole universe? That's ridiculous. Trust the judge. Don't be the judge. That's the first point. The first way we seek control is to judge. Number two, here's another way in which if you're suffering, you might seek to control the world around you and the harm it does to your faith. Grumbling. This is a lot more fun, I think, grumbling. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So judging, if that's all about pushing people down and a sort of superiority idea, I'm over you, grumbling is all about tearing people down and undermining them and and making them weaker from underneath. Grumbling is such an easy thing to do, isn't it? I can't believe they've done this to me. You'll never guess what they've gone and done now. Well, I'd never have done it that way. What's the matter with them? Why can't they do it like this? Why can't we have this? This is not good enough. I expect more than this. What are they thinking? What a fool. What was going through their head? Grumbling is not talking to someone. It's talking about someone. There's nothing wrong with questions. There's nothing wrong with disagreements and arguments and problems and exchanges of points of view. That is actually how things get better. But grumbling is destructive. Grumbling cannot help anyone. 
Every single one of us on this feed and in this room has done it. I bet half of us have done it this morning. Why do we do it? If grumbling doesn't make anything any better, why do we do it? Well, it it feels good. That's the only explanation I can give you. It kind of feels good to do it. See, we might get some sympathy if we grumble, and that feels good. We might get some compensation if we grumble. That, That feels good. If we make enough noise and we get enough people to grumble along with us, we might even get our way. And that's control. And that feels good, doesn't it? Notice, zoom in. It's not actually just general grumbling that's talking about, you know, here, oh, stub my toe, it's cold today. It's, it's specifically grumbling within the church that James is addressing now. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. That word includes sisters, believers, those in Christ Jesus. But so many churches work this way. I'm thrilled to have a fellow pastor in the room. Welcome. We know this, don't we? So many churches run on grumbling. Not our churches, praise God, but but so many churches run on grumbling. Many churches run on the concept of a congregational veto, that anyone can get their way and block anything so long as they grumble enough. Then they wonder why people won't come. Well, it's horrible, that's why. (laughs) Uh, The titles of the three books I'm about to quote you will uh, themselves be sermons, I think. In his book called Disappearing Church, the author Mark Sayers says that the biggest problems facing churches that close down come from inside of the church. In his book, Comeback Churches, Ed Stetzer says that the biggest barrier to turning a church around is grumbling from within. In his book, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rayner says that the number one thing he hears from members of a closed-down church that he interviews, and he has interviewed over 5,000, is grumbling. None of this takes us by surprise. Exodus chapter 16 says, when we grumble against our church, we grumble against God himself. That is not a working faith. Grumbling against God is the opposite of a working faith. It's a broken one. But we do it to seek control because we want to be God third way in which we seek control. Oaths. Now, this might just seem really weird to you, oaths, a bit sort of medieval or even older. It also might seem somewhat outside of the argument so far. I get the impression that the translators of the ESV weren't quite sure what to do with this, because if you look, there's a little indentation in verse 12, as if to say, it's kind of a new subject, but there's not a little heading, as if to say, it's not much of a new subject. They're really not sure what to do with this bit. But uh, I think I can explain why James goes there. Oaths are a form of speech, like judging and grumbling. And oaths enable you to control situations that feel out of control. We make oaths, wild promises and guarantees, if we feel that we're not being taken seriously. Like if we feel like we're losing the room, we get more exaggerated. Look, I swear, this is true. See my hands? Didn't plan the gesture. Just, it just happened. I swear I'm telling the truth. I'm not armed. You can trust me. I promise. I guarantee. And the, the hand goes to the heart, you know, the beating of the breast. Oh, I swear to you that this is true. I promise. I guarantee. Our plumber 
said to me, I give to you my red light guarantee. When you see those red lights driving off down the driveway, there's no guarantee. At least the dude was honest. Oaths to steal an idea from Ben are like magic. And uh, he, chose, he stole it from John Paul Sartre, maybe. Uh, oaths are like magic. Oaths are like your genie in the bottle. You can turn any situation around to your advantage with an oath. The check is in the mail. You use that one? I will pay you next week. You have my word. Oh, well then, okay, I, I now trust you. I'll go away, I'll stop uh, giving you hassle. The problem is that if we use these oaths too frequently and we don't keep them, we lose credibility. Have you had one of those people say to you, look, um, I'll be honest with you? And what's the first thing that went through your mind when they said that? Well, hang on a minute, were you lying to me like five minutes ago? What do you mean you'll be honest with me now? What, what have you been saying so far? Do you normally lie? And uh, how many times have you been promised something on the telephone? What have you said to them at the end of the conversation? Can I have that in writing, please? And what have they said? No. Like, is phone truth different from written truth? Seemingly so. In James's day, like, this is how out of control it got. This is how far they'd escalated things. In James's day, to persuade people and to turn situations around, they even swore oaths by the name of God himself. In God's name, I promise you this thing. And James says, don't do that. Just be honest. Why can't you just be honest? The world is watching us. The world knows what we say we believe. So for people of faith, there should be no difference between sanctuary truth and office truth, or church truth and home truth. They should be the same thing. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. What do you mean yes? Well, I mean yes. How, how hard can it be? If God's name is just an ace up your sleeve that you can drag out a, a cheat card to turn any situation around and gain some control, that is not a working faith. That's magic. When we feel afraid, we like to gain control. And, and our, our world is wild. As Ben said at the beginning of this service, our world is out of control. Well, it always was. <laughs> and we feel out of control. We always were. Nothing has changed. We just see it now. But when we don't know where to turn and when we feel out of control and we want to regain some control and when we've been suffering, these are three tricks that we use, judging, grumbling, and swearing of oaths. These are time-tested techniques to regain control or at least the feeling of it. But we never were in control. Relying on ourselves, defaming the name of God in the process, only makes it worse. And so James, it couldn't be simpler, says, instead, trusting God alone is the hallmark of a working faith. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, it is true that in these naughty times, we are afraid and vulnerable and suffering. And it is true that we stand in a, a room like this, just often aware of of our failings and our sin. 
but you're a gracious God who died for us. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that we would dethrone ourselves, take ourselves off that judgment seat, that we would bring our grumbling into the light and submit to you, and that we would just be honest about our failings and about our needs, about our hopes and our desires, and we bring it all to you in the matchless name of Christ. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, soon. Amen.